You're listening to the Eagles Insider Podcast. Now here's your host, Chris McPherson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Eagles Insider Podcast. Yes, I am Chris McPherson. I am joined, as always, by Fran Duffy. Hey, guys. And Alex Smith. Hi, everyone. Got our producers, Brian Thomas, Chris Stevens, in the background. Last week's show... We start off with Merrill Reese's game-winning overtime call of Jordan Matthews' 41-yard catch-and-run touchdown. And it was a great start to the show. Emphatic win. We thought it was going to be that turning point type of win. Well, we could have started this week's show with another Merrill Reese call. As the Eagles were driving with Mark Sanchez at quarterback in the fourth quarter, they got into the red zone, and they were in field goal range, down by one point. Could have easily have you know made sure they... Got the field goal, but you're trying to get the touchdown to really put the game away to get the come-from-behind win. And Merrill Reese was prophetic and saying, you know, the biggest thing you don't want to do here is force a bad throw. Don't force a mistake and cause a turnover. He transitioned seamlessly from that statement into calling Rashad Jones' interception in the end zone on the pass intended for Miles Austin. So it's almost like he saw that mistake coming. So, folks, we're sitting here. The Eagles are 4-5. and five. You know, Chip Kelly warned not to look at that Dallas game as, you know, that momentous occasion because it doesn't matter if you can't carry over to the next week. Well, for 15 minutes on Sunday, the Eagles carried yeah. over with their most dominant first quarter performance of the entire season. And really, outside of the Jets game and the Giants game, they had a, an early lead on an opponent. And very similar to the Jets game, they allowed the opponent to get back in the game. The only difference was here. They allowed the Dolphins to come all the way back and get the win. Yeah, it was obviously a very, very tough pill to swallow for Eagles fans. So many things, and this is the case anytime you have a game like this where you know it's decided by you know one touchdown or less. So many individual plays on all three sides of the ball you could point to and say, if this had gone differently, then the Eagles would have won the game. And just so many of those plays where you could say, you know, if, 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 and obviously the uh, the outcome may have changed, but tough game to swallow. Yeah, and C-Mac, you talked about Merrill Reese before the interception. Well, I heard him on the way down to the locker room after the game they played the radio broadcast in the elevator on the way down from the press box and you could just hear it in Merrill's voice you gotta love it about Merrill because he gets so up for when the Eagles win and he gets so down when the Eagles lose and you could just hear how devastated he was after that loss but it was really a shame too because it was incredible how the stadium went from elated when it was 16 to 3 and you're thinking all right they're gonna crush these guys like this is it this is the turning point and then there's a three and out and then you know four or five punts later there's a blocked punt and it's just like all all of a sudden, the tide started to turn and the Eagles could just never get things back in their favor. For me, you know, once I saw the Eagles get that big lead, I said, you know, the Dolphins had just lost back-to-back games to division rivals. I thought they were the team ready to implode. I thought they were the team that, at that moment, they're going to quit. You know, I look at their best player on that team, and Dominican Sue, and he's a very hot and cold, a very streaky player. And I said, that's the type of moment when a player like that typically goes in the tank, and it was the opposite for him. He was outstanding after that first quarter. He was arguably the most dominant player on the field for the final three quarters. Yeah, and it's really the one moment I think of, and I, I think Sam Bradford overall, before he got hurt, played a, a very strong game. I think he's really starting to, to kind of hit his stride here in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. We were up 16-3 at one point in the uh, I want to say it was late first quarter. This is what we talked about yesterday, right? You yeah, there was yeah. there was Zach Ertz coming across the field. 
uh, on a deep over route, very similar to the route that Brent Selleck ran numerous times on the, on some of those big gainers, the 60-yarder on the first drive. He had a 20-yarder on the on the very next drive. Same exact play. Zach Ertz was coming across the field, was wide open, may have gone about. for a 60, 70-yard touchdown, wherever they were out in the field, and he just missed them. You know, and that, those are the kind of plays where it's 16-3 at that point. We ended up punting. If we connect on that and that goes for a touchdown, it's 23-3 in the first quarter. This team's going to fold it. You know, Miami would probably have folded. There's so many different opportunities where that, there were chances there for that to happen for the Eagles. All right, so later on in the show, Fran and Alex – We'll look at this week's opponent, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who uh, had a big win for themselves. They are now 4-5 and five on the season as well with Jameis Winston at quarterback. They knocked off the Dallas Cowboys 10-6, to handing the Cowboys their seventh straight defeat. Yeah, I was actually really surprised that we were talking about it earlier today before the show that they're 4-5. and five. I was really surprised to hear that that was their record. I thought they weren't that good of a team or that average of a team, but uh, really excited to uh, dig into that on Enemy Intel. All right, uh, Alex. Oh, we got a Bucks. We got a Bucks fight song. Bucks, Bucks fight song. Here we go. Oh, geez. After last week, I don't know. <laughs> I was looking forward to uh, making fun of T Pain and the uh, Dolphins fight song, but you know, after the way things went on Sunday, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Alex Smith will conduct another edition of Game Time, and of course, we'll have your questions on mailing it in, including a fascinating X's and O's debate. But before we get into three and out, where we delve deeper into Sunday's game, Brian, why don't you tell fans how they can consume the Eagles Insider podcast and the other podcasts available through the Eagles? We have a whole group of podcasts. Uh, we have the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast with Fran and obviously uh, Greg Cosell, great podcast. Enjoy listening to that. I want that as well. Help them out with that. And uh, we have Eagles Insider. Obviously, you guys are listening to it. And then we obviously have Journey to the Draft where we kind of look at college prospects and kind of how the Eagles are looking in terms of what they're going to do in the offseason. So rate our podcast, like our podcast, whatever feedback you like, good or bad. We get a lot of good stuff on Eagle Eye. So whatever you guys like, you want certain interviews, you want certain segments, we can certainly make that happen. So send your feedback our way. All right, BT, thank you very much for that. Now it's time for Three and Out. One, two, three, three. Three is a magic number. Three. Three. Now it's time for Three and Out. All right, so here's our opportunity to delve into three distinct aspects of the game or even maybe take a big picture approach when it comes to the Eagles. And uh, Alex, since your topic's more focused on the game at hand on Sunday's loss, I'm going to let you kick things off here on 3 and Out. Well, thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. Um, The biggest thing that I took away from the game was how many uncharacteristic aspects there were from the Eagles. And it wasn't just one thing. uh, It was a number of things. And it started out with the hot start to the game. We talked about it earlier, but 16 points in the first quarter for this team is incredible. They scored their first uh, first opening drive touchdown of the season. Um, they finally got things going in the first quarter, which is something that they haven't been able to do this year. And then from there, it was the opposite of what this team has done because they've been a second-half team for the entire season. Um, and things just went downhill Um so the, the, the hot start and then not being able to finish it was really uncharacteristic. Uh, another thing was no takeaways, which is something that I think we've really grown accustomed to with this Bill Davis defense. Um, obviously, they had the safety at the beginning of the game, which was a huge play. And, you know, some people, I think it was, actually, it was either Chip or Bill Davis who said that, it was Bill Davis who said that uh, maybe if Walter Thurman didn't tackle him so hard, the ball wouldn't have bounced out of the end zone. They could have recovered it. <laughs> That's not a takeaway? A safety is not a takeaway. Really? Yeah. It does not count as a takeaway. I mean, you did take the ball away. And you, got and the you ball. get the ball. You get the ball. That's Correct. Not yeah. a takeaway. But it's not a takeaway. I just want to clarify that. Uh, yeah, I don't know why, but it's not. 
Um, so no take. Malcolm Jenkins had the other play in the end zone where he uh, almost picked it off or, or near the goal line, which was a really good play. Um, but no takeaways for this defense that's been averaging about three per game. Uh, another aspect, poor special teams for the Eagles. Um, John Dorenbos, a few of his snaps were high. A couple of them were low. Um, and it's just something you're used to, John Dorenbos, where it's the perfect snap, perfect hold every time. Um, and that's something that the Eagles special teams aren't getting right now. They're not, they also aren't getting good uh, good protection on punts. We saw uh, Chris Maragos got a little overpowered there on that one punt block. Um, and we've seen two punt, punt blocks this season, which is something we're used to seeing the Eagles do to other teams. So, uh, And then the final thing, I think really the biggest thing, um, is that the Eagles just couldn't run the ball against Miami. And Miami, I think they're a top two or a bottom two or bottom five rushing defense, depending on how you look at it. It was bottom two going into the game. Bottom two. On Sunday. And then the Eagles had 26 rushes for 99 yards. And it's, it's not terrible numbers, but I think the Eagles were over 150 yards in each of their last four games or something like that. So you really thought that you know the offensive line was coming together. Um, and DeMarco Murray and Ryan Matthews had been running really well the last few weeks. So you thought that they, at least they'd be able to run the ball against that Miami front. But give the Dolphins credit. Uh, and Dominick Sue really took over and dominated. Um, and overall, just uh, some really uncharacteristic things from the Eagles on Sunday that you know were surprising. Fran, before you get into your point, you've watched the tape multiple times since the game. What was the biggest thing that Miami did to take away the Eagles' rushing attack? You know, I think that part of those numbers, if you look at the the uh, the switch at quarterback after Sam Bradford got hurt and Mark Sanchez came in, there were a few uh, a few of those runs where, you know, it was a kind of a read play where it was at the at the mesh point where you know Sanchez is going to hand the ball off to 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 Marco Murray or he's going to pull it. There were a lot of miscommunications there where sometimes he went to go pull and Murray just wouldn't let go of the ball yet, and so Murray thought he was going to keep it. Uh, a couple of those where there were, you know, it was just a hair late. And so that kept the play really from from starting to develop. Uh, some other plays, look, where Indominus Sue just you know just manned up either on Matt Tobin or on Jason Kelsey and was able to make the play. Uh, I didn't think that the tight ends had a really strong game at blocking. So there were just a few things where uh, you know the Dolphins were able to win some one on one matchups and and make plays in the run game. It's very interesting that Jason Kelsey had his struggles early in the season, and when I was co-hosting the kickoff show on PhiladelphiaEagles.com with Joe DeCamera. I said, I think Jason Kelsey's been a big part of the turnaround. His play had been much better as of late, and you notice the Eagles, the way they've improved. And head coach Dan Campbell even said, Kelsey's the guy they're focusing on on the offensive line because of the fact that he makes the calls and his ability to get to the second level. So the fact that the Dolphins were able to negate him, I think had a trickle-down effect on the rest of the rushing attack. Yeah, I think that he... He didn't. He didn't really have a, an awful game in the first half. The first half, I actually thought he was he was solid. Um, the second half, he had he had a couple plays where obviously he'd like to have back uh, a couple where you know he's on the move and he's taking his first or second step and he gets jacked up. You know, it's it's tough to kind of play with a strong base at times, especially at his size when you're on the move. But uh, look, it's just it's not just Jason Kelsey. There were plays across the board there. Uh, you know, that final play of the game, that fourth and ten, where. Uh, he had Riley Cooper down the right seam. He had Zach Ertz down the left seam. Lane Johnson gave up inside pressure, and Mark Sanchez wasn't able to step into the throw. He had to get rid of the ball quicker than he would have liked. Went to Jordan Matthews short of the six, and, and there goes the game. So, uh, you know, there's issues all up and down in terms of consistently across the offensive line. All right, Fran. I think you're up now in three and out. Uh, so the, the question, this was a question I posed to you, C-Mac, uh, mm -hmm. yesterday after the game, was is was this loss the worst of the Chip Kelly era in terms of 
just the the gravity of the loss. And obviously, look, you go back to that loss last year in Washington, uh, and obviously that 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 was the season. The game, the season was over in that loss after, against the Redskins on the road. But I, I, think, I would even argue the the loss to Dallas. At that home. would be the one. That would be the one that I think is probably worse. But other than that, I, that would be number. That would, it's either if it's not number one, it depends it's number two. what you mean by worse, though, because. I mean, Dallas at least was a pretty good team last year. Obviously, they were a playoff team yeah, last year. Yeah, they, they were a good team. team. Uh, Washington was a terrible team last year, and it was you know, it was a Saturday night game. It had like a weird feeling to it, and I would say I would still put that I think as the worst loss of the Chip Kelly era. Well, what about yesterday or you know uh, Sunday? We record this on Monday, so by the time it gets there, to on Wednesday, that's why it's, it's always up there. But to me, I I don't even think this was the worst loss of this season. I think the, the first Cowboys loss was worse than this. Really? Just from that, I feel like that game was uglier. Now, this one obviously hurts because you had the big lead and, you know, Miami's not that good of a team. But uh, that Dallas game was one, to me, that just, it, it really hurt. I, the Eagles couldn't do anything right that day. It was the home opener. You know, the fans were so jacked up for that one. And then it was just a dud. Uh, I might put, I think I'd put that one ahead of this one. Um, but it's interesting that you guys were talking about that after the game yesterday. It must have been a really good mood back here oh, at the NovaCare Complex. Rainbows and, uh, and sunshine. Sunshine, exactly. What about Minnesota a couple years ago? That came up. That came up in the discussion. Yes, and you still had things to that play was, for. That was after Matt that. Castle, no Adrian Peterson. I think it was a week 14, 15 yeah. game we were going to yeah, go. Was week I think we had the opportunity to either clinch the division or really put a – a close if, on it. If so. we would have won that game, we could have clinched the division next week against the Bears. And that was that that big trust thing we had on 54 to 11. 11 game, right? Yeah. The the only reason why I'm inclined to maybe say not because it's his first year. So how do you hold? No one expected the Eagles ex- to be ex- in that spot. Exactly. Yeah. So how do you hold a loss against in 2013? But um, this definitely was a, was a letdown. This brought up a separate conversation. If you want to go down this road, Fran, <laughs> did that second half of that 2013 season kind of put the Eagles in a situation where they went into 2014 thinking that they had the quarterback in Nick Foles, and how could you deny the fact that he had a phenomenal 2013 season, 27 touchdowns, two interceptions. We don't need to rehash the numbers. It was an outstanding season, but it seems like it was a lightning in a bottle effect, and the Eagles went into the 2014 draft with players like Derek Carr, Teddy Bridgewater, on the board there late in the first round. And the Eagles took Marcus Smith. They felt they had their quarterback in Foles. The Eagles are now on Sam Bradford. And you look at the teams like Minnesota, 7-2. and two. Oakland turning the page. They're in the right direction. They seem to have their guy. And Bradford has made great strides. But now we all have to wait and see. You know, we don't know if he's going to be able to play this Sunday against Tampa Bay. As, as of we're recording this, there's no further update from the head coach, so um, he has to recover from the concussion, from the shoulder injury. So it's still something that is going to be in the backs of minds of Eagles fans as the season winds down, no matter what happens. You've got to think about the quarterback situation moving forward because of the fact that Bradford is on the one-year deal, essentially. Yeah, no question. You go, you go back to that time. You know, even even this offseason, when after the year that Nick Foles had a year ago, 
fans, there are still factions of fans that think that it was not the right move to trade him, which is unfathomable to me because I think with a four-year sample size, I think we have now can see that that second half of 2013 was more the anomaly as opposed to the norm uh, with Nick Foles and what he is as a quarterback uh, in this league. But, you know, it, the, making the trade for Bradford was the right move. I think that he has really started to come into his own. We'll see if he is out and how long he is out. But uh, moving forward, I think that, uh, that the quarterback position obviously is going to be an area of focus one way or another uh, for the Eagles and for the fans. Yeah, I, I think hindsight is always twenty twenty, but I don't I don't think I don't look at that two thousand thirteen season and that hot streak as a bad thing. Um, and I, I I've heard this discussion from people on you know sports radio and all other places about the same thing. But um, any time that you can win, you know what what did they win seven out of eight down the stretch yeah, or something like that. Um, to make the playoffs, the excitement that that brought, you know, to give this team an opportunity to win the Super Bowl, to go to the playoffs in Chip Kelly's first year, um, I don't think that really changed things because I still think that the coaches and the the front office here, I still think they knew what they had in Nick Foles, even if his numbers were outstanding, and they were, he had a tremendous year, but even even then. I still think they knew what they had in him. I still think they knew what Foles' limitations were. So I'm, I'm not sure how much that really would have affected that's anything. That's a fair point. So that's going to do it for three and out. It's time to transition to the interview. And now it's time for what you've all been waiting for, the interview. And this week, my special guest on the Eagles Insider Podcast, none other than quarterback Thad Lewis. Thad, welcome. To the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you grew up in the Hialeah section? Opelaka. Opelaka, okay. Grew up in Opelaka. They bust us to higher than Miami Lakes because gotcha, there's, okay. no, there's no high school in my section. Gotcha. So uh, one side of Opelaka goes to higher than Miami Lakes. The other side goes to Miami Central. So growing up in that football-rich area, how did you not want to go over to the U for college? How did you end up at Duke? They didn't recruit me. So since they didn't recruit me, um, I had an opportunity to go to Duke and play against them. Um, so every year I look forward to that game, obviously being in the coastal side and playing. Yeah. <laughs> so what was it about Duke that attracted you to that school? Uh, obviously, when a lot of people, um, you go on your visits, I would tell any kid, ask questions. And one of the questions I asked was, what was the graduation rate for athletes? And it was like 98%, 97%. And the only reason it was down because of some of the guys that leave early in basketball to go to the pros. And so I was like, this is a no-brainer. At the end of the day, my mom wanted me to graduate from college. If I'm good enough to play in the NFL, they'll find me. But um, I can't turn his education down, and so that was the best fit for me. Where was that instilled from? I mean, that's not something that most 17- and 18-year-old kids would have in mind. I have to give credit to Jerry Hughes, my high school coach. He gave me this list. So, you know, sometimes kids be like, Coach, I'm not reading this. I'm not checking this off. I'm not asking these questions. And I would ask the questions, and I asked my mom to go on every visit with me. And um, we would have the checklist, and we would actually go over the questions coming back um, on the plane, seeing that everything fit the description of what I wanted. And Duke was the best place. The only thing um turned me down from TCU is there was no kids out of state um, on that roster. And then I thought, like, well, if it come down to me and a hometown kid, like, well, you know, how is that going to play out? Pittsburgh was too cold. South Florida, I didn't want to stay home. Just growing up in Miami, it's too close. Four hours away, um, I needed to see something different out of the state of Florida. Um, and I think Duke was the best decision for me because we're stuck in a bubble down there. People don't understand, like, it's another world. 
Like we're a melting pot, so I you can say we one of the Caribbean islands. You know, if you ain't from Miami and you come to Miami because I'm dark skinned and you look at a guy that's dark skinned and start speaking to him, he gonna say no hablo inglés. You know, so it's different growing up in, in Dade County than anywhere else. No question about that. Now at Duke, Duke's known for basketball. So what was it like going to play football at a school known for basketball? Um, one of the challenges um, they presented me with was helping change the culture. And I did that one time in high school. I went to Booker T. Washington my freshman year that a lot of people don't understand. And Booker T. Washington is a national ranked high school that a lot of people know that won like three straight champions, state championships. And um, I transferred there and went to Miami Lakes. And when I transferred to Miami Lakes, that was actually my home school. So Miami Lakes was two and eight the year before. And um, I left with Jerry Hughes, and now we have a rule in Dade County that a kid cannot follow the coach because I, I follow him <laughs> to Miami Lakes. Um, that's our rule that we have made up now, but a kid can't do that in Dade County anymore. Brilliant! <laughs> it, it's the Thad Lewis and Jerry Hughes rule. So we went there. They were two and eight my freshman year when I was at Booker T. My sophomore year, we went five and five. My junior year, we lost in the state uh, quarterfinals. So to help turn that program around, and then we went to the playoffs the next year and lost, I figured, you know, I can help do that at Duke because I've done it before. I faced the adversity. Um, I've lost some games where it was tough, but we finally got it going. But the best thing happened to Duke was David Cutcliffe and his staff, and uh hat goes off to Kevin White for finding him and bringing him in. So you were there for how long before Cutcliffe came on? Uh, two years. Okay. Two years, and it was funny. Um he said he wouldn't have took the job if he didn't have a quarterback. And I was like, Coach, like we, I, I haven't won one game in two years. <laughs> he was like, um, but you're tough. He said, every time I watched the film, you were getting hit, but you always got up. And he said, with, with a guy like that, I could, I could win football games with. So I was pretty excited. I didn't know who he was. Really? I was, I was ready to transfer. They were thinking about getting Paul Johnson. I'm like, I'm not running no option. <laughs> <laughs> And so I was ready to transfer. Um, I was thinking I, that's when I was going to go back home to Central Florida. I was really? thinking about transferring to Central Florida. And uh, people was like, you know, you, can, you might get Coach Cutcliffe. You might want to look him up. I had no idea who he was. I looked him up and went back to Heat Shooter and Peyton, mm-hmm. T. Martin. A lot of people forget about T. Martin. Yeah. And then, and then you have uh, Eli. And I was like, okay. Well, maybe there's something maybe in, uh, should, something here to maybe this. Maybe I should stay <laughs> since he has a great reputation of developing quarterback. So I stuck it out. I think that was one of the best decisions I made. So what was it like there as you get to finish your college career? Because the basketball program, that's when they're going to win the national title. So what was it like being on campus during that time? It was great. Um, we finished our season at um, five and seven that year. And so the football team had momentum. We won three ACC games in a row. And obviously the guys that won the national championship were the guys that came into school with Brian Zubak, um, Lance Thomas, Brian Shire. Um, and so I knew those guys personally and um, to see the success that they had. You know, obviously I can say my senior year we won the national championship <laughs> in football and my senior year was the year that propelled Duke football to where they're at now. Um, we helped get the young guys that's, that's in there now that's winning, that's going to three straight bowl games. Um, we helped. Um, seal the deal with with a lot of those commits because of our success on the field that year. So, why do you love those challenges? Because if, if it was easy, anybody can do it. And um, obviously, all you have is the name on the on the back of your jersey. And what you want your legacy to be, you only live once. Is is a guy that was able to help 
transcend and change something, um, you want to leave that type of legacy behind. And so that was one of the things I wanted to do um, going into college. So what were the other teams that you were looking at following the draft process during that hectic time when you got to select the team? Um, my draft process was simple. Shoot. Um, I kind of knew I wasn't going to get drafted. Um, um, me and Drew Rosenhaus discussed things like, okay, it might be this team, it might be that team. They were saying the Eagles like me, they might take me in the fourth and things like that. I didn't get a call until the seventh round. And um, it was a former guy that worked at uh, Duke that called me Bruce, who actually works uh, for the St. Louis Rams, and said, did anybody call you? If I would have knew the game back then, I would have said, yeah, somebody called me. They, was gonna, they said they're going to draft me with the next pick. And I could have got drafted. You know, I was green. I didn't know what yeah. was going on. So I was like, no. Well, you had Rosenhaus. Right. Rosenhaus knows everything. <laughs> yeah. Come on. He had Will Spaghetti on the phone to right. fake that uh, he was going to get drafted. You know what I'm saying? So I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know the game there. But I told him, no, nobody's called me. He was like, okay, if nobody drafts you in the seventh round, we're going to sign you to a free agent contract for $2,500. And we're going to bring you in. And that was my one and only call and my one and only opportunity to get in this lead and I had to make the best of it. So what was your thought going into a situation where you knew that the Rams had just drafted with the number one overall pick? Sure, Sam Bradford. Me, me and Sam was coming out of college, so <laughs> I was like, uh, if they give me the opportunity, I'm ready to compete. But obviously I knew I couldn't compete with $50 million. But when I got my chance, I, wanted, I just wanted the opportunity to make that team, just to make an NFL roster. And so uh, Steven Jackson actually taught me the game, and I was asking him questions and things like that. He always say, ask a veteran. And to this day, hats off to him because he taught me the game. He was like, take advantage of your opportunity. If it's not going to be here, it could be somewhere else. You're playing for 31 other teams. And um, played well enough that they had to keep me on a 53-man roster the first two weeks of my rookie year. So um, then they wind up cutting me on a Saturday to hide me. <laughs> and I, I cleared waivers, and I finished the young practice squad, but – that was my introduction to the NFL. And then I got that one start at the end, my third year. So, What oh, was that one start like for you? It was fun, man. <laughs> the, 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 the whole preparation, the whole week of preparation for the Steelers, them being the number one defense, the rivalry with the Browns and the Steelers, and me playing um, at Heinz Field, um, kid from Miami, first NFL star at 16 degrees and snowing, right? <laughs> <laughs> But it was interesting. The game was 10-10 going into the fourth quarter, so we obviously had a chance to win. Um, we fell short 24-10, to but, um, but learning experience. And I think if I didn't play well in that game, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you on the podcast today. So <laughs> that's off to Pat Sherman for giving me the opportunity. So you ended up in Buffalo. Yeah. And you got a chance there right. to, get, to be the starter for an extended period of time. Uh-huh. What was that like? Not just going for one week, but knowing that for you know, a few weeks, weeks there, yeah. you were the guy. Um, like I just told the guys on the interview, um, it was actually about Sam and you know him getting hurt and what's that? My decision to come in here, you know, you never wish nobody to get hurt. And I tell them just like this, if I didn't get hurt after my third start, who knows how my career would have ended up, you know, but things happen. So, but just... Um, the grind of knowing every week you're going to start, it's fun playing football. It's fun going out there competing and being able to try to get wins for your team and help your team get a win. So I, I was able to, you know, play against the Bengals and go home and play against the Dolphins in Miami and get that W and 
fall short against the Saints, and obviously. I'm going to. <laughs> so that was cool, man. I was able to beat the Dolphins twice, actually. So going back home um, in Miami, was a lot of people mad at me, but happy to see me <laughs> see me being successful, but mad that I beat the Dolphins. But it was pretty cool. Is it the a challenge for someone who played as a freshman in college and played for four years to all of a sudden go from all the snaps, all the games to watching from afar, practice squad. How difficult of an adjustment is that? You learn how to adjust and adapt. Um, You still got to get those reps. It might not be physically, but you better be paying attention mentally. Um, You better be watching just as much film as the starter because if the coach asks you a question, um, even if you're the third quarterback and you're not on practice squad, what if somebody gets sick overnight and can't play and you have to be the backup or you have to step in and you're not ready? That can be um, your last chance in this league because you went out there and snuck up the field because you didn't know what you was doing. So, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's prepare every week as if you were the starter. And when you get your chance, you wouldn't have to change your habits or the things that you have to do week in and week out as if you were the starter. And everything would just be, you know, the same every week. So this is your fifth NFL city. Yeah. So starting from St. Louis to Cleveland, to Buffalo, to Houston for a year, yeah. now Philly. Before here, what would you say is the best and maybe the not-so-greatest thing about each of the cities that you lived in? Um, we'll, we'll, start with, we'll start with St. Louis. St. Louis. Uh, that was my, my redshirt year that I didn't have in college. So it was fun. I was able to get out and see the city and things like that because I didn't have to stay in the team hotel on Saturdays. I was on practice squad. I came to the meetings. They actually traveled me. But that was like my redshirt year, so I had fun. Like I was, I was out and about in the city. In Cleveland, um, it wasn't much to do in Cleveland. It's cold, very cold, very very cold in Cleveland. Um, only thing they had going for them was, uh, I think, a Sixth Street things like that. So it wasn't much to do in Cleveland, and then in Buffalo. Buffalo. It was it. The, I would say after Philly. Some of the best fans in the world, you know, because um, in Buffalo, if you lose, they stop coming to the game. Philly, win, lose, draw, they at the game. So that's the difference I've seen, yep. <laughs> seen with Buffalo and Philly. But in, um, in Buffalo, it was, it was cool, man, to see Niagara, to be able to drive an hour and a half to Toronto, to be right there across the border to go see Canada and things like that. And I thought that was cool. And then being in Houston, uh, not having a winner, man, was feeling like he was back home in Miami, you know. And um, here in Philly, I I feel like I'm home in Miami because it's kind of fast. You know, it's not too slow. It's city-like. The weather is not as bad as Cleveland and Buffalo. So, I mean, it's the same. I've been around the Great Lakes since I've been been in the NFL. Um, But I've had a great time here. Just see how passionate the fans are. And obviously the food is great. Um, you, you, You have to be careful. Eat, <laughs> going on South Street, the Ishkabibbles and, and gyms and things like that. Um, but the best thing I, I would say is anybody like to shop, there's no, there's no tax on shoes and clothes for the kids. And I, I tell the people that back home, they're like, what? You're doing your holiday shopping here? Yeah, they was like, you know, we might have to go up there for school shopping, things like that. But it's pretty cool. It's pretty good, but I love Philadelphia, man. I, and I tell anybody, watching Donovan McNabb back in the day, you know, one of my idols, at quarterback to watch. Um, now to be here, you know, it's crazy. You ever asked Shermer 
about McNabb? Always. He always told us stories about McNabb. Yeah. Yeah. Always told us stories about McNabb. And, you know, obviously he was able to coach him. And I think one of the funniest stories he told us was when he uh, gained a bunch of weight. I think after he broke something, broke his, broke his leg or something. Yeah, the ankle his injury. His ankle injury. And he, and he gained like 30 pounds. And Sherman would say he was drinking like a gallon of milk a day. <laughs> that was really cool. Thad Lewis, thank you very much for joining us here on the Eagles Insider Podcast. Best of luck to you. Appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. Time to get ready for game day. It's time for Enemy Intel. All right, Fran, let's talk some X's and O's here with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. First things first, the first thing that comes to mind for me when I think about Tampa Bay is their young quarterback, Jameis Winston. Obviously, the number one overall pick in the draft, kind of the consensus number one pick. It's obviously him or Mariota going into the draft, but Winston's the guy down in Tampa Bay. How has he looked through his first nine games as a pro? I think that Jameis has looked good. For a rookie quarterback, I think that he's looked good. Uh, Obviously, he's going to have his downs, and that surely has happened. There have been some bad interceptions on tape. There have been times where he's looked a little bit frenetic under pressure, Uh, but that's to be expected. I mean, and especially you saw a little bit of that last year as in his sophomore year at Florida State, where there were some issues with, you know, seeing those underneath defenders in zone coverage. There were issues with some bodies around him, though he does flash the ability to be able to work in muddy pockets. He does flash the ability to be able to sidestep pressure, keep his eyes down the field and deliver the football so there are definitely some things that he needs to work on but overall I think that he's shown true NFL ability I mean he makes anticipation throws he shows the ability to work safeties in the middle of the field I think he has shown the ability to throw with accuracy and with touch he's not afraid to pull the trigger down the field and that's something mm-hmm. that they've really taken advantage of they've got a couple big receivers there with Vincent Jackson Mike Evans and then the tight end Austin Safarian Jenkins he's not afraid to pull the trigger to any of those guys so in that offense I think he's really come along and it's funny you see the way that they make the offense you would think okay they're going to try and really make take make it easy for them mm-hmm. make it pretty well defined a lot of those plays that you typically see from offenses that have young rookie quarterbacks and they're trying to bring him along slowly you don't see as many of those plays as you would think i think that they've they're not afraid to give him more and make things a little bit more complicated for him well he really ran a pro style offense at florida state didn't he so Correct. is it was that a, a big help as he transitions into the nfl no question and that was a big part of why you know coming into the draft process why he was so appealing i mean that, that was why he was the number one pick you can go back to that whiteboard segment he did with steve mariucci of nfl network and just yeah. how easily he was able to recall information from earlier in the segment and, and repeat it back parrot it back to mariucci and and those are the things obviously that he was able to do in meetings with teams and he's just got such a high football iq they're able to throw more at him and that shows up on the tape moving from the quarterback position to running back doug martin charles sims obviously a couple of talented runners down there in tampa how is that run game helping out Winston to this point. Yeah, they've definitely made an effort to establish the run game and that's been that was an issue for them last year. That's why they overhauled a good chunk of that offensive line. They spent two pretty high draft picks on linemen in this past draft. And this year they are running the ball more effectively. You know, they try and hit it up between the tackles. There's a good amount of gap scheme and zone scheme runs. They try and diversify things a little bit. You'll see a lot of runs with a fullback as well with Javorski Lane in there. So they do try and mix things up. I think Doug Martin has really started to come into his own a little bit. We're seeing a little bit more of that muscle hamster year that we saw a couple years back. It's been, it's been some time since we've seen that from him, but he's definitely showed up in a big way. And Charles Sims, I think his, he's probably the more electric player in this offense because they don't have a ton of speed on the outside they don't have a ton of speed at tight end 
he's their guy that if you know if you want a guy that's going to be able to hit for a long gainer he's the one to do it and he's not a true burner in terms of those you know the running back position we're, we're getting ready to play theoretic from detroit you know with the lions next week he's got true deep speed and got the ability to win those matchups one-on-one sims isn't necessarily to that level but in this offense that's what he is Meanwhile, over on the defensive side of the ball, the real strength of this Buccaneers defense is right in the middle with their two talented linebackers, Quan Alexander, Levante David. How do they deploy those two guys? In a variety of ways. And really, it's just so much fun watching those two guys. Really, like if you were to just watch this defense and just focus on those two, I could do it all day because it's two guys that actually that I really liked in college and now watching them two play together side by side. They're very similar players in that they're rangy. They play sideline to sideline. They're required to play in coverage in that scheme very often. It's a big zone coverage team, so they're required to drop you know into their landmark in coverage and play in space. Quan Alexander's made a number of plays on the ball for interceptions this year, some that have counted, some that have gotten called back due to penalties, but he's able to make a lot of athletic plays. Both are very instinctive guys they're tough downhill it's not like they're these undersized players that are afraid to mix it up in the box both these guys will take on an offensive lineman take on a pulling tight end or a fullback shed them and make a play on the football so two really instinctive fast flow linebackers very similar to what we saw this past week actually with Miami where you had Koamisi and Jelani Jenkins Mm -hmm. these two guys are built very similarly in that there's a ton of speed inside. They're able to play sideline to sideline. They're used as blitzers as well, and both are very good getting after the quarterback. So that really is, to me, is the strength of this defense. They've got some players up front. Obviously, Gerald McCoy is a very talented defensive lineman. I think they've got some talent at the cornerback position as well. Mike Jenkins is very instinctive. Jonathan Williams, who was a second-round pick out of Mississippi State a few years back, is very talented as well. But you look at those two linebackers, that's the strength of this unit. I know that Jordan Hicks was obviously having an outstanding year here, but Fran, for your money, is Quan Alexander the defensive rookie of the year right now? I've heard some say that's Marcus Peters from Kansas City, and mm-hmm. I, I haven't really gotten a chance to watch the Chiefs yet, so I, I can't really attest to it. But he's definitely one of the best that I've watched this year so far. I mean, he, he's making plays all over the field. There's one play that I'm going to write about later this week. Julio Jones took, took a quick slant pass, and he went you know, 30, 40 yards. Quan Alexander chased him down, stripped the ball from behind, and then returned it back the other way uh, for a long return. Just a really impressive athletic play. Plays with a ton of urgency. I, I just love watching that kid play. We will see how he plays on Sunday afternoon. Great stuff from Fran, as always. And now let's transition into game time. Get out your scorecards. It's game time. There's a very gloomy mood here in the Novacare Complex today. So I'm ready to liven things up with game time. Are you guys ready? Indeed. Ready. (laughs) I'm sorry. I can hear the excitement in your guys' voice. That's that's just great. Since we have the Tampa Bay Buccaneers this weekend, obviously the game is pirate-themed. So I have some trivia questions for you guys, sports-related, pop culture, and all the answers are pirate-related, and you have to say it. Like You have to answer it like a pirate. pirate, Are pirate puns welcome? Yeah. Great. That is the weirdest. Is that a pirate? That's the weirdest pirate I've ever heard. (laughs) So if you... (laughs) So if you don't answer as a pirate, you don't get full credit. Can we uh, not play the drunken pirate uh, drop anymore? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the fans stumbling home last Zombie pirate. <laughs> walk the plank, the plank. Uh, so for example. Time to walk the plank. So for example, if I ask it's what. It's time pl- you walk the plank, the plank, the plank. <laughs> the plank. I don't even know where you get These are the weirdest drops we've ever had. Uh, if I ask what position does Alan Barber play. Left guard. Guard. <laughs> right. All right, so we got the gist of it. Yeah. All right, Fran, we'll start things off with you today. 
And we'll start I, off easy. We get a little bit tougher as we go. This Eagle was originally a sixth round pick in the NFL draft. He finished his college career as his school's second leading rusher. To he? walk the plank! It's a sixth round pick. <laughs> uh, oh, we're losing here. I have... I, Kenya walk the plank. Yeah, I'm gonna have to walk the plank on that one. Uh, nothing for France. C-Mac, chance to steal. Kenyon Bar. Barner is correct. Yeah. Oh, Time to walk the plank. So that is. Wait one. a minute. You said he was a former sixth-round pick of the yeah. Eagles. I didn't no, say no, never no, said no. Eagles. I said this Eagle was a former sixth-round pick. C-Mac. I call shenanigans. There. Is that a pirate term? <laughs> shenanigans? Yeah, I don't think so. It's all right, C-Mac, your turn. All right. This member of the Eagles practice squad hails from a town called North South Carolina. Ooh. North South Carolina. <laughs> There's storm clouds ahead, sir. Uh, let's see. <laughs> I- I'm taking a shot in the dark, but is it Freddie? Martino. Martino is absolutely correct. Man Nicely done. <laughs> <laughs> Two points for C-Mac. Fran, back to you. A basic geography question. This is another term for a group of islands or an island chain. There are stranger things out there in the sea than you could ever imagine. <laughs> We've broken Frank. Yeah. <laughs> Frank can't even speak right now. And a chain of islands. Hoist the Jolly Roger! I've got nothing right now. C-Mac, chance to steal. A group of islands. Yes. Group of islands? No, I... The, the actual term for it? No. That would be an archipelago. Oh, man. You guys don't know your geography. I guess. No. Time to walk the plank. <laughs> C-Mac, back to you. This NHL player played 18 seasons in the league for six different teams, including your New Jersey Devils, where he scored the Stanley Cup game-winning goal in 2000. Jason Arno. Close enough. I'll give it to you. Jason R. Not is correct. Three points for C-Mac. Fran, you're getting shut out here. Three nothing. Fran, this actor has appeared in such movies as Jarhead, Garden State, and in Education, among others. Do you mean Jarhead? Yes. More uh, of a supporting actor than a leading actor. I've got nothing. I've got nothing. Nothing from Fran. C-Mac? What were the movies again? Uh, Jarhead. Jarhead, <laughs> Garden State, and an education. Mm. Nothing. Correct answer. Peter Sarsgaard. Yeah. Two of them in there. No, no love for Peter Sarsgaard. All right. C-Mac, back to you. Kay. This Eagle defender lists his hobbies as fishing and hunting and says he would work in the lumber industry with his dad if he wasn't playing football. Ooh. This current eagle. Okay, defensive player would be working in the... I'm going to go with Brian Brayman. Incorrect. Okay. Fran, chance to steal. How about Taylor Hart? Correct. Oh, All right. Oh, Fran's favorite. Nicely done, maybe. Fran's favorite. Had to be that one. I had to steal. Fran gets like on the board. Like a true pirate, I had to steal the point there. Three to one as Fran plunders some booty. <laughs> <laughs> Up next, Fran, back to you. This state is the 29th largest in terms of square miles and the 32nd most populous. You're going to have to repeat that question. This state. (laughs) One of the 50 United States is the 29th largest in terms of square miles and 32nd most populous. Arkansas. Correct. Oh, I was going to be all over that. A 3-2 lead. That was kind of an easy one. 
Uh, a 3-2 lead for C-Mac. C-Mac, we're back to you. C-Mac, this, this is a good one. This is the least favorite part of the job for our intern, Julie Bacanskis. <laughs> I'm trying to think of how to uh, say it exactly, but... Trey Girl. Oh, Trey Girl, no, not no? Trey Girl. No, no, incorrect. Is, Fran, chance to steal. Is it, it DCR? Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> DCR so, video. We have to explain what okay, that is. So, <laughs> Trey Girl, I call it Trey Girl because she has to take our trays. <laughs> Well, back it's, down it's a, to the kitchen area. It's, it's, so. it's a rite of passage. When I was yeah. an intern, I had to take the trays down. Just be yeah. careful in tray girl. Whoever the intern is has to take the trays down that we uh, compile throughout the week. <laughs> DCRing is just you know, part of the upload process part, for our videos. Posting, posting video yes. and uh, print pieces <laughs> to the website. Wow. So we are tied right now. Great comeback here from Fran. Shout out to Melissa Kelly for DCRing. Correct. We so we're tied at three. One question left apiece. Fran, we're back to you. This West Philadelphia suburb has a population of roughly 12,000 people. Upper Darby. Oh, that's incorrect, but I guess that would count too. Oh, that one fits Ooh. as well. That's not the one that I have written down. Oh, I know what it is. Fra get, take a second shot, Fran. Ardmore. Correct. Oh, look at that. But Upper Darby, uh, that works as well. Could I? Could uh, I you live in Ardmore? No, I live. I live in. I live in Narber. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I Does give, I get three points there, or what? No, you get one point <laughs> oh. there. So Fran is taking the lead here from down 3-0 back to four three. Okay. C Mac, you need this to tie. C Mac, this is a nocturnal burrowing mammal with long ears, a tubular snout, and a long extensible tongue, native to Africa. Uh, let's see. A nocturnal burrowing mammal. Need this for the tie or you walk mm. the plank. I'm getting signs from our producer, Chris Stevens. I don't know what he's doing. Good either. to know what side Stevens right. is on in this, uh, in this battle exactly. here. Let's get some of the walk the plank no. music going. No, you can, you can get the walk the plank music. Fran, a chance to steal and clinch. Aardvark. Correct. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Go. Why is Chewbacca coming into this? A furious comeback from Fran oh, Duffy there. C-Mac nice had the three nothing lead, but Fran storms back, and it's a pirate's life for Fran as he wins five to three. So that's all. Who is this? What's just just line? a random dude. I don't know. Nice. That's their, that's their biggest face uh, on the have. After speaking of painful losses, I just instantly think of the. The Bucks game. NFC Championship game. Oh, that one. Uh, oh, I was thinking of Matt Bryant. Ron, Ronde Barber. Oh, no. Oh, that's no. well done. Matt Bryant. That didn't have a significant impact on the uh, team's outcome that season. Yeah. It's true. That one closed the vet. On well, that note. Yeah. On that note. Happy days here at the Novakar Complex. Exactly. Yes. Let's move in to mail <laughs> mailing it in. Captain. Incoming message. Please check your mailbox. A new message has arrived. And now it's time to hear from you, the fans, in our segment, Mailing It In. All right, so uh, welcome to the final segment of the Eagles Insider Podcast. Before we get into your questions, uh, we were talking off the air, and uh, our producers, BT and Chris Stevens, they have a question for the podcast. Actually, something that they've been discussing and want to bring to the podcast. So this has been a debate for uh, for some of the producers here at the Eagles Network, and, and Chris really wants the microphone right, right. now because he doesn't get to talk much, but we had this debate <laughs> over Cam Newton. There's so a I, reason about that. I'll, I'll let him kind of pose the question. I wanted the mic because I don't want my words twisted, everybody. Thank you. Well, first to start, it was 
Cam Newton or is he better than Carson Palmer? Obviously, he is. Everybody knows that. No, that's the next question was (laughs) at this point in his career, can Cam Newton be considered a great quarterback? Not a good quarterback, but a great quarterback. I mean, this is you're getting into we were comparing Cam to other quarterbacks. So, would you take Cam over this guy? So, I said, he said, you can't name five other quarterbacks better than Cam Newton this year or that you would take over Cam Newton this year. Okay, well, can anybody name five quarterbacks? Are, Are we talking for this Eagles team? That's, that's no, important because the way they have built very that team, we weren't we weren't speaking from the Eagles. Team, we were speaking over a general standpoint. Well, if you, you if you took Cam Newton and put him in an offense like, and obviously Carolina's done a great job constructing that offense around Cam Newton yeah. and around what they have in the running game and all, along that offensive line and with that receiving core, it's not a, the same offense that you would see in New England or in Green Bay or in Denver or in most, uh, you know, in New York with the Giants. I mean, you're, you're not seeing that offense anywhere else. And there's a reason for that. I mean, Chris, you were with me when we broke down Carolina. What, what, we, what were one of the things you said during that, uh, during that time? What was one of the things that surprised you most watching the Carolina offense? That Cam Newton is not as fluent of a passer as I thought he was. You know, his mechanics are definitely not consistent. His feet are awry very often, but he is a playmaking quarterback, and he has a different dynamic that none of the other quarterbacks you named, even the greats like Tom Brady and Eli Manning, have. That's why when we had the awards segment, the potties. The potties. The potties. I said the coach of the year, you could argue, is Mike Shula for tailoring the offense to his skill set. And when you go into the MVP debate, I would say he's number two behind Tom Brady. Ahead of Carson Palmer. And it's probably Absolutely similar. It's similar to 2010 when Tom Brady was so far away at the MVP that Michael Vick, who you know theoretically should have been number two, didn't even get a single vote. It'll probably be something like that. Yeah. Unless something happens down the stretch where Tom Bray is playing phenomenal and Cam has been outstanding. And obviously, there's a huge reason why they're 9 0 at this point, but still not the best player in the league. I think that, you know, if for some reason Brady didn't get MVP votes, I think that Cam Newton would get more MVP votes than Carson Palmer, but that doesn't necessarily make him a better quarterback right, than Carson. Because right. if we're talking, you know, the traditional sense of a quarterback, I think Carson Palmer is a much better quarterback overall than Cam Newton is. Thank but you. for that offense and for the way that they work and for what he has to do, there's no one better for that offense because it's tailored to him in Carolina. So this is the follow-up to that. He then goes, "Is Cam New-? He says, oh, Cam Newton is great. The producers, all the alarm went off again. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. The guy's What's great. great? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know what, what we call great, but... Great was described as elite well, in this conversation. Well, here's... I'll say this. How would Cam Newton perform if you had Larry Fitz, Michael Floyd, John Brown in you, Carolina? But you can't say he would definitely be good. You can no. definitely agree that he would probably be a lot better off with that cast around him than what he's had to deal with since 2011. I would wonder, my point would just be, how would they structure the offense if they had those receivers? That's it, it might not work to his benefit, going back to you know his... His passing abilities, but I just think overall defenses have to account for his dynamic in the run game. You do, and that yeah. opens up the pass for him. Well, here's it does. Here's my point: if you look at the Eagles game against the Panthers last year in 2014, when he was hurt and he couldn't run, he was terrible. He had three picks in that game. One of them they ran back for a pick six. So if you take away the running, the Aspe- things that aspects, make him, yeah, yeah, the things yeah. that make him dynamic, he's not a very good drop back. And, you know, pocket passer. I think he's proven that. And, and in no way was I trying to like, he, he made the comment, we all got crazy. And I thought about it. I said, okay, he's looking at it from the standpoint of the, the guy's eight, the team is eight. No. So I can't argue that he's not a winner. Like the team is winning. 
But do, enough, but, do, but do I think he's like an elite quarterback that I think he's a top five guy that I would draft? Personally, I don't. I can think of five other guys that I would take before him. I think that Cam Newton has been playing great this year. He's been playing he's the best football of his career without year. question. I just want to add that consistently he's had above an 80% passer rating. That doesn't mean anything to me. Just want to add that. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I QBRs and passer ratings. And, yeah. All right, so let's get on to the. That questions. was a good. That was a good. Uh, Sorry, we, it, 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 it got hot up there. Now. Joe Helder was really getting upset and just put his headphones. That on doesn't take it. much. Yeah, <laughs> hit the Joey button. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, mailing it in. Let's. Uh, the biggest question, the most popular question, really can't get into is why is the team so bad? And actually, there's different variations of how that was phrased that I won't say on this uh, <laughs> PG version of the podcast. But two fans. And we'll get into this question. The first person to ask it was at Coleman 5000, why is Miles Austin still on the team? And certainly you look at the ineffective performance he had on Sunday. But Alex, you want to chime in on? I think he still deserves a spot on this team. But I just, my question comes in with how many snaps he's playing. Because I think he played, what, like 52 snaps or something in the game on Sunday? And, you know, you look at Nelson Aguilar. Obviously, Aguilar's coming back from an ankle injury. So maybe they're trying to take things slow with him. But, you know, I'm fine with Miles Austin is better suited as, you know, a fourth receiver on the team, a guy who can come in and make plays here or there. But I really, I struggle to, you know, find reasoning in him being, you know, a go-to option on the outside, you know, a first or second receiver on this team. I mean, typically they've been lining up, you say Josh Huff complimenting with Cooper or Austin or Aguilar right. would be in Huff spot. So it's more of a rotation thing that from that standpoint. And it's also the fact that Chip likes to rotate the receivers because of how many plays they're running because of the tempo. Yeah, and how many yards they're running on each play. Yeah, so he brought up that number in his day after press conference. Mm-hmm. The yards run throughout the course of the game is actually very high. So you need the rotation. So even though he may not be the number one guy, he's going to be out there on the field. The key for him is just to make sure that he's got to make plays. There are some great opportunities for him to step up on Sunday in a huge way, and he wasn't able to do so. He's made a couple of plays this year, too. He had that big catch uh, on the road at Dallas last week. It was a nice, like, over-his-head catch. I think it was in the first quarter. Uh, He had the touchdown at Washington, I believe, as well. But, Chris, like you mentioned, he just, you know, he had a a number of plays yesterday where if he can get his feet in bounds on that one play, it's a different game, but we'll see. So there's a question about Miles Austin. Uh, Next one, let's come from Eagles Troll the World on Twitter. What's been the most maddening thing so far this season when it comes to this Eagles team? I think just the fact that you don't know what you're getting from the offense week to week, and it's something different each time, and that's the infuriating part. It, it would be, I think we would take a little bit more solace in the fact that, okay, we know it's one issue. It's the passing game. Just haven't been able to block up front, or you know, they're, they're not getting uh, the production in the in the run game from you know from the backs. It's literally one little thing on each and every single play. I was in there with Chris Stevens. We were watching the game this morning, and and showing Chris, and Chris was like, "Wow, you know, it really is one little thing on each play that changes it." And it, it could be sometimes it might be a block from the tight end. It might be maybe the running back you know doesn't hit the right hole. It could be the receiver uh, you know runs his route a little bit too slow, or the quarterback has to get rid of the ball too quickly. One little thing each time can just change. The outcome of a play and that and that's been the most infuriating thing is just the the fact that there hasn't been a sustaining feel yet to this offense not not to plug enemy intel but how do you change that i think that i don't know I don't know how you change it. I, it really, it comes down to just, just getting it right. I mean, it, that's what it is. It's like, it goes back to that E word. It goes back to the execution and just making sure that everybody is doing their job. Everyone's, when they're on the field, everyone's doing their 111th and doing what they need to do on that given play. Because it's interesting because it's not a complicated offense. You know, they try to conceptually make it, you know, more simplistic. So it is an execution-based offense because of the tempo and they want to run things quickly. You don't want to be thinking too much out there. So it's not like you can 
scale things down really to make it no. simpler for the players. So I, it's interesting because I kind of look at it the other way in terms of what's the most maddening thing about this team. And to me, it's that the defense has played as well as they have this year. And, you know, the Eagles are four and five to show for it. I think the defense has been outstanding when it comes to taking the ball away. The pass rush has been better. It's I don't I still don't think it's where it needs to be. But Fletcher Cox and Benny Logan are, are having great years up front. The secondary, you know, the safety duo is one of the best in the league. And, you know, whether it's because of, you know, offensive inefficiencies or whatever it is, I don't think that they're getting the recognition they deserve because people are looking at it and saying, you know, how good can this defense be if they're under 500 at four and five? So to me, I think it's a shame that, you know, as well as the defense has played, like if you hold Miami to 20 points, I think there's a really good chance you're going to win that game. And the same can be said for a number of the losses already this season. So to me, it's that the defense just hasn't gotten the recognition that it deserves. Certainly, I would definitely agree with that. It's a good take on the subject. I guess for me, probably piggybacking off Fran, I think it's really just overall that the team, every time, and I said this at the top of the show, every time you think that the team's right there, ready to turn the corner, you're going to get that boost of momentum, they take a step back. Mm-hmm. So I think that to me is the fact they just can't get over that 500 hump. And I think they have, you know, what, one two-game win streak this year? Yeah. When they were one and three, and then they got yeah. back to three and three, so... So I think that, for me, would be the most maddening thing to this point. Last question comes from OsnapU on Twitter. Specifically, how has Sam Bradford improved as a quarterback throughout the course of the year? I think that he's gotten a lot more comfortable in the pocket. I think that he's done a good job in terms of reading what the defense is giving him and then taking what they're allowing him to take. So early on, if it's first and 10 uh, and they run a, a concept to one side where it's a three receiver concept and you've got one guy deep, one guy in the intermediate area and one guy short, if he sees that short receiver is going to be open, he's going to take it and get his six yards and now it's second and four and now you're keeping the offense rolling. And I think that's a good thing for this offense is to try and keep this offense moving keep it out of those second and long and third and long situations and he's done a much better job of that over the last few weeks you see him handling pressure and moving within the pocket working with bodies around him delivering the football he's been much more accurate over the past couple weeks you you can see that he's starting to get get back into the groove and back into the swing of things it's a shame about the injury we'll see how long he is out obviously we none of us know at this point uh at the taping of this podcast but uh very very interested to see and very anxious to see uh his return and how he plays the rest of the year to me i think the biggest thing that I've seen from him from the start of the season until now is actually his mobility outside of the pocket and throwing on the run. And the best example to this point came in Sunday's game, which was the touchdown to Josh Huff, where he gets outside, scrambles all the way to the sideline. And the whole time he's running out, his eyes are on the end zone. They're moving all around to find somebody. And then at the last second, he throws back across his body. Josh Huff's wide open. And to me, that's a play that doesn't happen, you know, in the first couple weeks of the season. He did have a a play like that at Washington where he found Brent Stelick for a touchdown. But seeing him throw comfortably on the run, which I think, you know, quarterbacks really have to do in the way this offense is developed with those play action plays where they get the running back going one way and then they bring, you know, the tight ends and the wide receivers on those over routes the other way. And we saw him hit on a number of those yesterday. So I think seeing him throw on the run, I think that's been the area that he's improved the most. I think with that, it also helps create the misdirection element exactly which i think this offense is kind of built on that so i don't know say it's built on it but definitely it's an added element that defense would have to account for i think we saw that a lot with miami the way they run it's offense in that they try to what, what was the term that you used Fran on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast that Greg Cosell used the the misdirection is uh I'm trying to think of the exact way that Cosell phrased it something like that misdirection is like the 
foundation, the staple of the Miami offense. Yeah, I mean that, that is that is what they are. They're based on the misdirection, the deception element That's uh, what was, of, the, like of that. that of that offense. I found it interesting, by the way, that Dom Kinsu after the game. I don't know if you saw the quote where he called the Eagles a college offense. I think Miami's offense is much more gimmicky <laughs> than ours in terms of all the misdirection that they run and all the motion. I totally agree. I mean, just watching from the booth, everything is go one way. It's masked one way to go another. Yeah, yeah. it's bringing Jarvis Landry around. Yep. And, and it's interesting that uh, Bill Lazor, obviously their offensive coordinator, when Chip Kelly was asked, you know, did he take things from here and just look similar to what you do? And Chip said, no, it's more similar to what he did at Virginia, which is where he, you know, where he'd coached in college. So the Sioux comment kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But what can you do? They won. So I guess they can say what they want. Exactly. So that's going to do it for this edition of the Eagles Insider Podcast. Again, make sure to like and comment. What else can you do, BT? You can go on uh, iTunes and subscribe so you can obviously get the downloads directly to your phones. You're ready to go and you see them when they come up on the feed. So subscribe and listen. You can go also check it out on PhiladelphiaEagles.com and obviously on the Eagles app as well. Excellent. So uh, for Brian Thomas and Chris Stevens, off mic, so to speak, for Fran Duffy Knox with I'm Chris McPherson. You've been listening to the Eagles Insider Podcast. We'll be back once again next week.